Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Kai Whiting, the co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in. Kai is a researcher and lecturer in sustainability and stoicism. In the conversation, Kai and I discuss stoicism and sustainability, success and letting go of the outcome, how or not our past mistakes, the difference between rules and principles, and much more. I really enjoyed the book and conversation. I think you will as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Kai Whiting. Kai Whiting, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here, Joshua. I'm really, really pleased. It's just wonderful to reach audiences. It's wonderful to be invited to tell uh, the story of the book. A little bit possibly about my story. You might ask me, for example, how I get into stoicism or what I like about it. But thank you very much for inviting me on. It's great. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's it's an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the book as we were kind of chatting before we hit record here. And uh, that brings to, to this first question to begin the conversation. I'm, I'm really curious, your work of sustainability with this 2,000-year-old ancient philosophy, how did this come to be? That's a really, really good question. And it does actually start with how I got into stoicism. So I got into stoicism when, when my grandma was dying. I was reading a Stoic Influence book, it was on my lap, and it talked about the difference between observation, i.e. what is happening, and perception, which is what I think about what's happening, which I used to think were the same thing. And then when I realized that they weren't, I could separate it. So it helped me to not do these kind of questions, like, why did she die? Well, she died because she was ill. Right? If you think about it sensibly, we like to think, oh, why did she die? It's terrible, I needed her. But you're talking about yourself, you're not talking about her or him, depending who's died. And I just felt like, actually, she died because she was, because she was ill. Why did she die now? Because she was ill now. So the why question wasn't very helpful. It was more important for me to be like, what do I think about it? How do I feel about it? What does this mean for me? Because she died. So what it meant to her was, was absolutely irrelevant in any sense of the word. So I got into stories because it, if it can help you overcome challenges related to death so i don't think it can help you overcome death right because you're going to die right but it can help you overcome the challenges associated with that i thought wow but i had a bigger question like my background is sustainability particularly sustainable resources how we use resources more sustainably and i was like so what does this mean for like really important challenges such as climate breakdown or what does it mean for socioeconomic inequality particularly when it's unjust so of course stoics are not going to go we want to be completely equal in every single way no but if it's unjust what what is that what can we do what does that mean and there was not really any direction the contemporary uh, stoic uh, community towards collective issues 
because Stoicism is a very individualistic, on some, or very individual, it's not individualistic, it's a very individual philosophy, but it's very collectivist, which is really unusual because people say, but it's about being better, right? Which is why the book's called Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In, because it is about me being better, but not so I can be a better Kai, but a better person, which is a higher calling as such. So I got into it that way, because like, I was asking myself, like, what else could, if Stoicism can help me, overcome the challenges related to death. What else can it do? So as a researcher, I was like really excited about that possibility. If you can recall, what initially sparked your interest in sustainability? Any, any particular things that, that led you down that path? Yeah, I was, I was really young. I think I was eight or nine. My school, my primary school, I don't know what you call that in the US, I'm sorry. Elementary school, maybe? I don't know. Yes. So I was nine, and they decided to change the school a little bit. And they did something very, very subtle. Um, They changed the classes used to be one, class one, two, three, four, five, depending on the year. But the school headmaster had a different vision, and he changed the classrooms to names of trees. And you had to be able, every year, you you had to be able to point out your tree, say it, Say what it needed. Say why it was different to the other trees. Like, oh, this one is like, this one doesn't shed its leaves and this one needs more water. Very simple. Nothing complicated. This one, this one is spiky. This one has fruit like this. The other one has fruit like that. This one. We had to be able, by the end of it, if you went through the whole school, by the end you, need, you knew about seven or eight trees. Right? So it's just a different way of thinking because then a tree belonged to you during that year. And that was something really important for some reason because it was like competitive, right? So we're like, no, but my tree's better. So it was something like very subtle but fundamentally important because it didn't, it, a number didn't say anything, but the tree was really, really something special. Or that at least they made it so. And then they would tie like things into like, oh, we're, going, we're going to spend, you know, the rainy British spring and summer going through the forest. We're going to look at leaves. We're going to pick them up. We're going to look at why the leaves are different. Are they waxy? Are, you know, do they do the trees, do they um, release their leaves in winter? Do they keep them? Very, very simple. What is the soil like? So they made us like pick up soil and say, this is like a beech tree. Can you see it's, because it's acidic? The soil, the soil doesn't, and the leaves are like really waxy and they're on the ground, it doesn't dry properly. Okay, let's go over here to the other part of the forest. So that was something like, for me, it was really normal. And then when I went to secondary school, which I think you might call high school, because we don't have a break, you have like middle school and high school, right? We just have one all the way through, and no one talked about it. I was like, how is that possible? My primary school talked to me about all this environmental stuff, we had environmental songs we used to sing, and nothing. But it, it already sparked that in me. So I think, I mean, it must have been that because I can't think of an earlier memory where I was really enthralled at school. So it, when I was 15, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to contribute to making the world, literally the world, a better place. Um, and then Stoicism came after because I think actually we've entered something called the Anthropocene, which means we are the biggest influence on the planet rather than, say, wind or the sea or even, you know, volcanoes these days, right? So it's like, actually, if we want to save the planet, so to speak, or improve it or make it better, then we have to make ourselves better. That's really, really interesting. How do you see experience and wisdom connecting? I mean, I'm kind of picturing all of these kids you talk about this experiencing of, of the trees in, in nature? Well, I think wisdom, it, wisdom in Stoicism is knowing 
what is good, what is bad, and what is neither, knowing what to do and how to do it and with whom. And people, the Stoics really think that you're, you can't learn Stoicism per se until you're 14. So people ask me that. What would you teach them? But they do have a, they, they do have, or well, since Zeno, they've said, live according to nature. So that can be broken down into two things. Your own nature, who you are. You have to know yourself, which is why when Zeno, before Zeno founds, he's a founder of Stoicism, before he founds it, he goes and speaks to the Oracle. So if anybody's seen The Matrix, that kind of character, like the Oracle, and, and above her door, it says, know thyself or know yourself. So you have to know yourself. That's fundamental. The other thing about living according to nature is to know the nature itself, i.e. the planet and reality. So I think if you, for example, economics, we talk about growth, and we call it, even in the sustainable world, they call it sustainable growth. But by definition, you can't sustain growth because it's, mm. it's, just, it's literally, it's not possible. Growth is not something that can be sustained. It's not in balance. And if you think about like, Okay, we all, the nature always wants to be in very like balanced in terms of energy, very different, like very steady state. And growth is the opposite of a steady state. So wisdom does come from from the Stoics' perspective, looking at the world around you and looking at your role within it. So Stoicism doesn't prescribe any particular action other than to say you must do what is virtuous, and you must you must not like vice, and you must stay away from vice as much as you can, right, to build your character. So I'll give you an example, Joshua. If you and I are walking down the street and you're a medical doctor and I'm not, in Stoicism we are both obliged to do everything we can to save that person's life. If someone is to save the person's life, if they're ill. So we come across a person in the street. I'm not a medical doctor. My obligation is to pick up a phone and call an ambulance. And that's it. If I try to be a superman here and try to do like, become like a doctor for a day, I might kill them. You also have the obligation as a medical doctor to do all that you can to save that person's life, right? But your obligation is something different. It's not pick up the phone and call them, call the ambulance. It's, pick up the, it's possibly pick up the phone and then go, okay, I picked up the phone, they're on the way, and I must do this. Or I don't have time to pick up the phone because I know this person's going to die if I don't clear their airways. And it's also part of knowing yourself is also his, how tired am I? Have I, just been, have I just been in, like, surgery for the last 12 hours? Should I operate on... Should I do something for this person? Because if I do, I might kill them. I'm so tired. So knowing yourself is also knowing literally moment by moment. Stoicism is a moment by moment. Is it reasonable now? Ten minutes ago, it wasn't reasonable. Now it is. So that's, that, I think that's the wisdom here, because a lot of people think, oh, wisdom is linked to consequences, Right? If it's not a wise consequence, that's not wise. And Stoicism says, you can't control your consequences. So I'll give you another example. People say, well, if you're speeding, you know you're going to get a ticket, so you're responsible for that. Well, no, the police officer is responsible for giving you a ticket. And you don't know that you're going to get a ticket, because if you knew that, that would just be silly, right? You would be like, and you'd be like, oh, I'm not going to drive like a crazy person because I don't want a ticket, which is wrong in stoicism anyway. Because you'd say, what is the reason behind me not driving like a maniac? Not because I'm going to get a fine or some points on my license. It's because I might kill somebody, right? But the person who's in charge of giving you that ticket isn't you. It's the police officer. So that you can't even, you can't even say, I know, therefore, I'm going to get one because you don't know. But the only thing that you have in your control is the car. Your foot is on the accelerator. Your hands are on the steering wheel. So the Stoics say that's what makes it, you know, that's the wisdom there, to know how far to put your foot down the accelerator. 
Now, if it's raining, it's not wise to travel at the same speed that you would if it were dry. So you might be legally within your limits. A police, aid, a police officer wouldn't stop you. And in stoicism, you're still being unwise because you're still driving as if the, if the road ahead of you was dry. Or it was a straight line and you had a curb. And again, if you're a learner driver, you know, okay, legally I can drive this speed, but I've just passed my test. It's raining and there's a curb ahead of me. And you might go really, really slowly because that's the wise thing. So it's literally a moment by moment. It's not just because I happen to be a doctor that's important. It's like I happen to be a doctor. I'm not tired. I know I'm on this particular road and this person has this particular injury. So it's not nothing to do with the consequences which are out of your control. You have to take them into consideration. Go, well, as I'm a learner driver, is it likely that if I go around the same speed as, say, Joshua, who's not a learner driver, that I'm going to make that corner? No. But I might be lucky. <laughs> I might just be really lucky and by sheer luck position my car in the right place. So that's kind of, I don't know if that explains. It was a long answer, but that's the kind of wisdom that Stoics are looking at. No, it does. And I really appreciate how you communicate a bit of these balancing acts if if you will you write how people regularly fluctuate between thinking everything is up to us or or everything is beyond our control and neither extreme is obviously helpful um how do you see these balancing acts and and what what helps us to notice that and uh you know know when to 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 go and and slow down as you say in the previous example well, in Stoicism, they use the Socratic method, which is basically having a conversation with the idea that you and I are going to reach an answer. Not that we're necessarily going to agree. Not that I'm going to shout, you know, this is a problem I've seen in the US and increasingly in the UK, where we just shout each other down based on our political stance, right? Or based on where we're from. So the idea is that we start off with what we agree with, because you might say, well, Kai, I think I could travel at that speed because I have a good car. Would you agree that I have a good car? And I might say, well, yes, a Nissan is a very reliable car. So yes, as you're in a Nissan and you're not in a you know, run-of-the-mill old banger that might not make it, yes, I think you could go, you know, that car is not the problem. And you might say, but Kai, do you think I could go that speed because I have, you know, 10 years of experience? And so, yeah, I think you're experienced enough to go around, you know, a little bit quicker than maybe a learner driver. And then, you, and then I might say, but don't you think you should slow down because it was raining? And you go, well, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good reason why I should slow down. It was raining. And I, I'm from Los Angeles, and I have no idea what rain looks like. Maybe I, I, I shouldn't go around because I'm not used to driving in the rain. So we would come to that kind of conclusion about how fast it would be appropriate, how fast would be appropriate to go around a bend. On something more complicated, let's take even let's take something quite difficult. You might say, shall we go to war? which is, a, of course, there's a lot of consequences, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be. So you might say, look, I've been on, I've been on the front line, Kai. I've seen my colleagues die. And I don't want to send men to men and women to, to, to die unnecessarily. I was like, okay, what does unnecessarily mean to you, right? Because you might say unnecessarily. And what I think is necessary and what you think is necessary is entirely different, which is why I don't like arguing on social media because people don't even define their terms. And in the ancient world, if you couldn't define your term, you lost. So there's a lot of arguments right now about what, what is racism, for example, when you end up with two people having completely two different definitions and no one's talking. So you might say, OK, what is, what is necessary to you? He said, it's only necessary if the US as a territory uh, needs to defend itself. OK, what do you mean by defend? You go, well, I mean, what I mean is that 
if we have an aggressor, we need to be able to defend you know, the frontiers of our country. What do you mean by an aggressor? Do you mean someone who tells you that Americans are stupid? Oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. That's not what I mean by an aggressor. Oh, so you wouldn't go to war because you know, a British person said that Americans were stupid. No, I wouldn't go to war. Okay, what happens if it was the Prime Minister? You'd be, no, 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 that's not what I mean by aggressor. Uh, so you mean what? So we have a, we, the UK has a trade embargo on the US? No, no, I don't even mean that. I mean literally the UK sends, uh, sends people, to you know, soldiers on the ground or on the boats and on the planes to, to attack us. And I say, okay, so if they send drones, is that okay? And you're like, wait a minute, drones? I haven't even thought about drones. Because if, basically, if you're telling me it's only because of like, boots on the ground, if they send drones, we can't attack them. Oh, yeah, that's a point, drones. Yes, yes, actually, it doesn't need to be boots on ground. It could also be drones. Okay, what kind of drones? No, no, really, they, drones that would attack, they would kill. Okay, when you mean kill, what do you mean? Like they, what, if they accidentally flew in? Someone, no, no, like, literally, they were murdering people. Okay, that's great. Now we know when we would defend ourselves. Okay, so if we managed to speak to Boris Johnson and we managed to persuade him not to send drones, even though he threatened with it, would we take that threat seriously? Well, yes, but if I persuaded Boris Johnson not to send drones, I don't think we could attack them anymore because it wouldn't be self-defence. And I've explained to you what defence is. Okay, so we shouldn't go to war under those circumstances. Okay, but what happens if they change? Well, if they change, what condition? You know, like it's always, terrorism is like, what about now? What about now? So you couldn't do things like the UK, or the UK government, let's say, because the UK is not somebody that has no agency. It's a piece of land or it's a political state. So the UK government did something. You can't, as a stoic, say, I want revenge, right? Because anger in stoicism is a temporary madness. It means that you believe that revenge is good. So you can't do something out of revenge because that's out of a feeling. It's not out of what is good for the country. You say, well, I'm not attacking the UK because I'm really annoyed that they blew up the Statue of Liberty because they said it was French. I'm really thinking about justice, right? And not just the idea, the concept of justice. I'm thinking that actually if we allow them to, like the British, to attack the Statue of Liberty because they think it's French because it you know, was French, I think actually that says something more because that, that particular statue has a big uh, connotation in the US. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. It's not, it might be a French statue to them, but to us it means something different. And then we might say, so how important is attack- if attacking a statue? But that's, you said if it attacked people when we had this earlier conversation. But now you're saying if a drone attacked a statue. So how important are identities? How important is the American identity? Are we protecting Americans or are we protecting the American identity, which are two different things? And we might come to a, a debate about what that means. I don't know if Joshua, if that explained how we, we would find out what was the right thing to do. It does, and I, I really appreciate how, and it comes through in the book as well, how you think very practically. You're really integrating these concepts into everyday life and these difficult, complex decisions. Um, when writing about the dichotomy of control, I love the example that you that you use, and, and I, I think it'd be very helpful for the listeners to hear that and, um, and maybe touch on how success comes in talk about rosa parks and claudette colvin could you tell that story for us i mean that's a fantastic story and most people will know rosa parks as the lady who refused to give up her seat on a bus and called it claudette colvin did exactly the same thing nine months earlier literally the same bus company the same city they even went to the same church the problem with the problem uh 
well, I won't call it a problem, but back in those days it was a problem, was that Claudette Colvin was pregnant age 15 and she couldn't be the symbol of the civil rights movement from this perspective. So you've got a person, you've got two people who do exactly the same thing and arguably the 15-year-old is, a, is braver than Rosa Parks because she's older. Right? And it's a very hard at 15, I would say, it tends to be harder for a 15-year-old to stand up and say no than an older person. I'm not saying in every case, but generally speaking. So that's a case of they both do the same thing. One gets seen as like the lady of civil rights movement, and potentially rightly so. The other lady is ignored. So this is why I'm saying like the consequences. We can do exactly the same thing earlier, and because of who we are, we don't get the same consequence. But in the stoic point of view, we basically have to hold, right, they use the metaphor of an archer, are you standing in the right position? Do you have your bow you know, at the right angle? Do you have your arrow? Are you pointing it towards the target? Are you using the right strength? Are you holding it tightly? Are, your feet, are, you, are you stable on your feet and you let go of the arrow and the wind, wind comes and blows it, of course? There's nothing that you've done wrong. You've done everything right, but the consequences just not hit the target. So Claudette Colvin did exactly... You might say, well, she was... People might argue with me, for example, but she was wrong to get pregnant out of, out of, um, out of wedlock, right? But that, that's a completely different situation. But you might say, even if that's true, that's got nothing to do with her standing up on a bus or not. So the Stoics don't go, well, let's, let's say that she's wrong because she did something else. Because as I said earlier, it's moment by moment. It's like you, if wedlock is something we value, right, and we think that that's important, that's a different discussion. The question is, did she do the right thing when she decided not to stand up on a bus? And who should, otherwise it goes to an ad hominem. So we're attacking her because she happens to be pregnant rather than going, did she do the right thing? So Stoics, I find, are very, people seem to think that this black and white thing is quite harsh, but actually I think it's quite humanizing because you're actually taking the person where they're at right now. You're not saying, well, you know, Joshua, you did this wrong like 20 years ago when you were 15, you did something that I didn't like, which I've seen on social media that people have said silly things when they're younger and then they've been attacked on it, attacked for it. And it's like, what, so a human can't progress, a human can't evolve or God can't lead them to new discoveries, only you. <laughs> so you get a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum who like, because just because of political points, I would say, are saying, well, Kai, when you were 15, you did this. Well, yeah, I'm not proud of what I did at 15, but I'm not the same person. Joshua's not the same person. Are we going to judge him for who he was? Or are we going to judge him for who he is? So stoicism is like literally judges your actions, your thoughts and attitude, not you per se, every moment that you take it. It's quite black and white that are you right right now? I don't mind what you did 20 years ago. You, that's not in your control. That's the past. The future's not in your control. The only thing that you can control is now. So the only thing that has a bearing on the shape of your character is now, which is one thing I think that uh, particularly uh, these, these people arguing on the right and left, they need to think about sort of religious values, actually. So, well, if you believe in God, isn't there a sense of forgiveness in any way? Now, Stoicism doesn't deal with forgiveness, but I think it's, it's easy to say, when, where, why have we lost this value of giving people the benefit of the doubt? <laughs> why are we so quick to jump on the bandwagon to score points? You know, and I think Jesus says, like, you know, take the dust out of your eye or log out of your eye before you look at the dust of somebody else. So I think there are a lot of American values that point to that. But I think some people cling to their political identity rather than, say, the, where they used to cling to the religious identity. And then you get into these 
these identity politics, right? Stoicism's like, well, your identity is really kind of irrelevant. Like, it's what are you doing? It doesn't matter if you're male or you're female. It doesn't matter what color skin you have or what nationality you have. That has no bearing on your character, how much money you have or not. That has no bearing. It's how you use money or how you do without money. It's how you use any privilege you may have. So Stokes wouldn't argue that there's only white privilege. They'd say there's privilege everywhere. If you're, if you're able-bodied, you have a privilege because you can walk or you're not in a wheelchair. If you're male, there are places you have privilege. There's also places when you're female, for example, in childcare. Um, it's very hard for men who want to work in childcare to work there. There's definitely female privilege there. So it's kind of like, how are you using privileges? How are you, are you aware of it? Not saying that there's only one type of privilege and that everybody who has that privilege is somehow bad. That's really not a stoic perspective. Does that make sense, Joshua? It does. When you, when you think about this, the idea of the archer, aim let it let it fly how does that help you if you i think about you know somebody writing a book and putting out a book you you work in academia and and publish papers that that seems to be easier said than done of of letting go of the outcome i think it's just it's helped me focus on what i can do and not imagine like everything that could possibly go wrong because even if it goes wrong I'll deal with it then and I used to be one of those people who tried to like plan for every possibility and actually it is sensible to think about it right you don't want to do crazy stuff but if you latch too much onto the consequence you actually get disappointed which is why like the word hope is actually quite dangerous because it's like hope is like you're not satisfied with what you have now so you're hoping for something better if it's even if you say, I hope, I hope to see you tomorrow, right? That's a different kind of hope. But if you're like, oh, I was really hoping for something better. It's like, oh, what was wrong with what you had? Well, why? That's just saying that you weren't very happy with what you had now. But the thing is, you only ever have what you have now. Regardless of what it is, <laughs> whatever you thought you had in the future has not happened. Whatever you had in your past, you no longer have. You have something that you might take with you, but it's what you've got in the present that counts. So it's kind of helped me focus on what is in my control right now, what's in my power. I don't like what's in my control because I think it's, it's not quite what the Stoics said. Epictetus said, what's up to you? And I like to think of what corresponds to me based on my role. So for now, for example, just while I'm giving you 100% of my attention and I'm not thinking, oh, well, I could be doing this or I could be doing that. No, I can only be doing this right now. And I must do this to this, the best of my ability because you've been... You've been very kind to invite me here and give me the opportunity to speak. And I know other people might say, yeah, of course, we all do that. Yeah, we do. But sometimes we're sitting in a room and we're thinking, oh, I could be somewhere else right now. A lot of people do that when they have children and they're still at work. So it's like you're sitting at home and you're trying to be with the kids, but actually you're really at work. So it's kind of like saying, well, you can't be at work now. You've got to be home. So make the best of it. I was going to ask you the same question, Joshua. How does that help you think it through? Um... I think having that reminder maybe makes it a little easier to catch yourself when you're when you're in that. I, I love the thought experiment that you put in the book of, of Rosa Parks. She was probably could have could have definitely thought about that when it when it came upon her to uh, to protest and and not not get up to think about Claudette and think about. You know the outcome. It didn't work nine months ago. It didn't really because there there was real consequences. And um, whatever decisions and choices we have, I think we can maybe hopefully catch ourselves. And I think it comes back to a bit of not knowing 
um, you write a chapter on luck, which is which is definitely something. But I, I wonder in terms of Socrates around just not knowing. We don't have crystal balls. We don't know the future. Um, you know, it's it's just unable to predict. Absolutely. I mean, would you say that um, your your previous life in the U.S. military has helped you as well think about those things? Like, I mean, because you've probably seen very dangerous situations where you had to be very alert. Whereas as an academic, that's rare that's ever going to happen, right? <laughs> Did that help you as well? Was your mind, were you already going that way? Because, I mean, academics, we tend to wander as part of being an academic. Whereas in your job, you couldn't wander. If you wandered, I guess you were in trouble. Did you say that your uh, previous job helped you with that mindset? Uh, that's a good question. I think it helps with navigating uncertainty or embracing uncertainty constant moving constant kind of operating in an environment where you you just don't know it's it's uncertain which i think can be really challenging um you know navigating uncertainty and and living in it how about rules versus principles to kind of move on a bit you write obviously it's it's a book that integrates stoicism so there's a lot about you know principles and virtue, virtues um but i'm curious based on your background sustainability and, and you're looking at the the big picture of social change how do you see rules regulations and individual kind of principles that's a fantastic question joshua so thank you for asking yeah, Zeno, the founder, he's utopia, right? It's really interesting because people think, again, that Stoic is, Stoicism is individualistic. And I was trying to clarify that. It's full of individuals, but it's not individualistic. Zeno's utopia is called, the, you know, his utopian work is called The Republic. He wasn't really interested in how to be a Stoic, but how to build a Stoic society. So in his Republic, he states that there should be, it's about principles. It's about what is wise. So let's take a rule. Let's imagine there's a rule. Every time you see a red light on a traffic light, you have to stop. That's a rule. Now, the principle behind that rule is actually for road safety. So in, even in the Utopia Republic, the question Zeno would ask you is, okay, do you have a pregnant woman in the back who really needs to get to the hospital? And you're like, yeah, she's dying. If I don't get her in the next in the nine minutes, she's going to die, I'm pretty sure, because, you know, the, you know, there's real complications. Either she's going to die or the baby's going to die. Okay, do we value her life, right? Well, yeah, on the baby's life, yeah. Is there a car coming? No, sir, there's no car coming. Can you proceed safely? Can you see around the bend? Yes, I can see. And you can clearly see there's no car coming. Correct. Uh, do you have to swerve or do anything unusual? No. Can you proceed safely and securely at a speed which would enable others to see you and to react? Yes, I can, sir. Then he would say, then that red light, you should cross it because the principle of the red light is road safety and not the red light per se. Because, I mean, you have to have a really good reason because you can say, oh, I was, I was just running late and I didn't want to be late to the party because you'd say, well, why are you late? You're like, oh, I wanted to, you know, brush my hair nicely. Well, couldn't you brush your hair when you got there? Oh, no, I was embarrassed. Then the problem is you being embarrassed. So that's the idea of like looking beyond the rule. So I'll give you one that's more, you know, more day to day. People want me to say all the time that <laughs> to be stoic is to be, you know, to be vegan, right? Because I am vegetarian. 
And I'm like, well, I'm not vegetarian 100% because that's a rule. And they don't like that very much. Because I have this mm. one thing where I said to... I tell this story quite a lot. Like, my mum uh, cooks uh, meat, and on Sundays... It's, I don't know if in the US you have this, but in the UK you have a Sunday roast. And that woman slaves over that dinner. And I said to her, look, I'm not going to eat meat, but I'm going to eat your meat on a Sunday when I'm in your house. Because she's going to buy the same amount of beef anyway. The amount of slices that I eat, like the one and a half slices, is not going to make a difference, right? And if I'm making a point by jumping up and down in my mum's kitchen, like that's not really serving any form of justice. I'm not paying for it myself, so I'm not giving the money to, you know, you know, I'm not actually supporting this. But when I, when I say to my mum, well, I refuse to do that, I'm actually attacking her rather than saying something about the meat industry. So that's one example when you say, actually, Stokes call us, you know, we're called to be just. But it's not just just in like, oh, I need to be just towards the animal. Yes, you do. But you always have to be just to the person in their house, right? If you don't, the other option is to say, which I do to friends, I don't want to eat meat, but if you don't want to cook me meat, that's fine, I'll come for dessert because it's very rare to get, to get a dessert that would have meat in it, right? But with my mom, it's, it's more difficult. So I, that's the kind of... So in my case, is, the principle is I want to be just. And I don't think that eating uh, meat when, from, when it's sourced from questionable sources, right? So I'm not talking about somebody I know who's a local farmer, an individual, because people always talk about that in the US. It's like, if you look at the analysis in the US, most farms are not individuals anymore. They're not families. They're massive companies. So if I want to support a particular farmer, it's better for me to go to the actual farmer and get the beef myself, right? So it's not I don't eat it because, because I feel like, oh my gosh, it's terrible to kill an animal, right? I'm like, because in Stoicism, death, death is not evil, right? The only thing that's bad is vice, and evil uh, is vice, and death is not covered in that because we all die. So, otherwise, we're all evil, right? So, it's not the killing of the animal per se; it's whether we treat the animal justly. So, a rule would say, regardless, regardless of whatever happens to me, other than if I'm say I'm starving, then I should never eat meat. But the Stoics say, well, what's reasonable? What's just? Also, imagine we're, in, imagine we're in a Pacific island and the only thing I can eat is fish. Am I supposed to eat coconut milk? And they might say, well, yeah, you can do that. So, well, my health would deteriorate and maybe I should want to be healthy. That's quite an important thing. But also, I might offend the people that I'm with. I might, you know, start a real, I might cause a massive problem. And so it's kind of like balancing what's just toward, you know, yourself because you also have to be, you know, comfortable. One thing that strikes people ask is, what do I want to do? It is the final question. So after all those things that we go through, like in the war case, you and I could go through, we, we come to the decision. One of us says we should go to war, and one of us says we shouldn't. But we have to come to a decision. And so you might say, well, why don't you want to? Right? That would be the last question. It wouldn't be the first one. You go, I've told you this, you've given me this fact, you've given me this fact. Because as the Stokes will say, and David Hume will say, you can't get a value from a fact. Just because you have this fact and this fact in a war, you have facts that actually contradict each other, right? You say, well, what fact is more important? And you might say, Kai, I really don't want to go to war because I've been there, I've seen it, and you haven't. And I'm going, okay. Based on your preference, we won't go. So it's the final thing. But it is, it is actually viable once you've gone through Even if we can't decide, in fact, the last viable thing is actually tossing a coin. So we literally don't know what to do. We're like, you think it's completely reasonable from my perspective not to go to war? 
I'm sorry, in your perspective, not to go and completely reasonable from my perspective to go because let's say I feel fear for my fear for my country and I you know I've given you a good reason. You say let's flip a coin. So that's actually the last the last thing you would do, right? Not an ideal situation, but you'd go for it like that. So even being vegetarian, you say, well, do I want to eat meat again? And I said, well, actually, the only person I want to eat meat for is my mum because she gave birth to me, and I think it's reasonable when I'm at her house and with other people I can be like. I don't have to eat with you, but I can have dessert. Or I can sit there. I have, and I say to them, I have no issue. You can eat meat. I have no problem whatsoever. You can give me food. And if you don't want to, I'll just eat before I get there. There's no worries. And most people, I've never had anybody or have one, only once, where they refuse to accommodate that. But most people do. I don't know. Trish, but can you think of an example where you've been flexible and that's actually really been helpful? Um, I, I don't... No, no examples are really popping up, but I, I love... The thinking of, of both and um, I think of kind of knowing when to stay in the lines and I think we have tendencies not everybody is um, you know come comes out right right down the middle I have a tendency to color out of the lines and, and maybe need to be mindful of that and, and vice versa I heard in an interview you say if you wanted somebody to become vegetarian you wouldn't necessarily tell them to you might invite them you know to dinner i didn't hear any elaboration on that could you could you speak to that a bit yeah you've done your research so i am impressed so yeah somebody said to me but if you eat this was very recently they said if you eat meat, you're actually contributing to you know animal suffering i said well actually it's a very dangerous argument because imagine i eat one slice of meat on a sunday and because i do that my whole family doesn't eat meat on a tuesday then i'm contributing to less suffering so the suffering argument is never a good way to go down it because i can show you how I'd create less suffering because my whole family of six people doesn't eat me. And now, on Tuesday, and now there's less suffering. So the idea is like, Stoics, you can tell people, right? You can say you're vegetarian if you think, that, if you think that's helpful. But I think that most people um, are really worried about what being vegetarian means, right? So I gave a talk at uh, London Stoics about what you know, sustainability and one of the options could be that we eat less meat. And so then I, and then I said, but next time I see you, I'll all t- you know, we'll all go out for dinner and we'll just try it. So I actually took them to, of all places, a Hare Krishna place. You can't get much more vegan than that. And there was one particular individual. He, was, he must be at least 60, if not 70. And he took his wife because he was really worried. He was the only person who took his partner. So I said to him, I want to sit next to you because I was so impressed with his effort. And he was like, you want to sit next to me? I'm like, of course, you've made a massive effort and called him by his name. Oh, and who is this? And he just felt really welcomed. He told me that. And then I see all these photographs in the following weeks of this guy being re- like doing loads of environmental things and like picking up litter. And he was like, this guy was really adamant that being vegetarian was crazy. And then without me saying anything, just being welcoming, just giving him the option to try something new and feeling appreciated. And because I really did say, I really appreciate it. I'm not just saying it because I wouldn't sit next to you if I didn't mean it. <laughs> when you sit next to someone, it, it can be the biggest compliment. You pay them if everybody wants to sit next to you, right, as, as the guest of honor, so to speak. And he went on and did loads of things. And I really think that when we start pointing and poking at people, it's not helpful. I think if you want someone to be vegetarian, and I said it's only in that moment, right, because as Stokes, you can know control moments, like invite them for dinner, cook them something nice, be kind. <laughs> like, don't sit there and point and poke. Um, I can give you examples where flat earthers have said to me, so people who believe the earth is flat have been really upset. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care if you think the earth is flat. That's up to you. And they're like, what? Like, 
I said, are you a pilot? They're like, no, no, no. it's fine. <laughs> and like, oh, and they, they have nothing to, nothing horrible to say or anything to say because they're so used. They say, I'm so used to defending myself, and you were like, I don't really mind. Not if they're not driving. Not if they're not flying a plane. No. If you're, a, I'm not being funny, but if you're a barber, does it matter if you think the earth is flat? Like really, on a practical level. So I was like, <laughs> up to you, my friend. Up to you. And it goes back to people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So this individual was like, you care about me, yeah? We're on the same side. He's like, you're the first person to say that. I'm like, well, I'm sorry that other people haven't said it. Because it doesn't really matter. Like, in his day job, like, it, it made no difference. And so I'm like, he's not flying my plane. He's not flying anybody else's. Great. <laughs> and then we had this conversation, and then he was like, ah. Oh. And he was just open to all these things that he'd never been open to before. Because he was like, you care? I'm like, yeah. So what do you think I should read? And we, we didn't talk about that stuff. We just talked about other things. And the ability for that person to go and open their mind into other ways is, is as valid. So I wouldn't say it's sensible. I mean, if you've got a pilot that thinks that, you'd think, okay, maybe they shouldn't be a pilot. But it's not, it's not for me to attack them on social media and call them names, which is what I was seeing. And then they were calling names. And I, basically, I try to stay out of social media, even in some stoic circles, unless I feel that I can contribute to something positive. You know, does that make sense, Joshua, or not? It, it does. It leads me to, you know, a topic that I wanted to chat with you around. Whether I don't know whether you'd call it perspective or metaphysics or whatever it may be, um, but some of these common Stoic perspective, or I guess you would say they're kind of just timeless perspectives of impermanence, interconnectedness, and, and things like that. Um, there's a lot about the virtues. There's a lot about, you know, kind of the rubber meets the road. But it, it seems like to me, and I'm by no means any expert, but those perspectives are really, really important of that foundation. And isn't that when you talk about making someone feel welcomed and being kind, you know, it, it's kind of altering their perspective not necessarily their virtues it may lead to greater virtue how do you how do you see that so virtue from the stoic point of view is your character it's the shape it's literally the shape of your character we sometimes contemporary stoics particularly the ones that are not so academic in terms of the philosophy itself they'll talk about virtue being a thing like out there but virtue is the it's the capacity for example courage is the capacity to know what to fear and what not to fear it's a capacity. It's something it's in you, right? So it's not like, oh, I, feel, I did a courageous act today. I mean, we can say that, right? And we were careful with the first book to, to take... In the second book, we, we're going to be very much more direct so that, because we're taking people on a journey. But it's not... You can do an appropriate act, right? But courage is really something that, that's inside of you. So basically, when, I look, when, I'm, when I'm acting kindly... I feel that because in Stoicism it's very important that I am at least trying to be a role model. To say, I can completely disagree with you. Like, I, I can completely disagree with you about who should be the, the, the president or the prime minister or the best football team or whatever. And I should still be able to see the human, you know, the human in you. And I was saying recently we were talking about, uh, when I was talking about uh, prisons, I said... I should be able to see the human in, in you, you know, the human in the incarcerated and the prisoner in me. Because, you know, I should be able to say that I, under different situations, in different circumstances, I may well have made a moral error 
that may have led me to be in, in jail or subsequently, because I know in America that jail and prison is not the same thing. So yeah, I could go to jail or I could go to prison. I think there's not enough focus in the, in the contemporary discourse in the English language. So it's not happening. I speak two other languages. not happening in other languages. It's only happening in English. Uh, the language that I speak, at least I can say, it's only happening in English. I think people are trying to, like, you know, put their flag down and then not give any... And say, I refuse to budge. And I refuse to listen. And I think that the Stoics are saying, like, they have a concept of circles of concern. So they start with you. You should be concerned but don't, you know, with you, what you're up to and what you're doing. But also you put it in from your friends and family. So you can see your friends and family in you and you in them. And then, you, you know, your local community. So if you're from Miami, the people of Miami. And then you've got the world community. And then you've got the earth, right, the animals. So you can say, well, I can understand why, you know, we should look after, you know, say animals. Because I can see that if people encroach upon my land or treated me like we treat cows, that would be, you know, that would be bad. It would just be fundamentally bad. But the problem I see, Joshua, and I'd like to know your opinion as well, is that we're not focusing on relationships with each other. We're focusing on what we believe to be true and based on our own set of facts and our own set of judgment. And that's important, but not as important as going, where's the middle ground? How can I, how can I open up a discussion? Not so that I can prove a point, because I see a lot of points trying to be proven here. And I, I find that I can speak to Republicans or Democrats or Conservatives or Labour if I focus on what brings us together. Because I might say to you know, to a Republican, but you really value like, you know, America, and you think that's an important country. Do you think, you know, I'm not an American, but I can see why you see that. So I can never understand exactly why you love your country because I don't love your country, but I love mine. So let's talk about how I love my Queen and how you love your flag. And for you, like. That flag is really important. And for me, if you insult the queen, it would be like for you insulting your flag. So flag and queen, two different things. But actually, I can see where we, would, where we actually come together. And then you can have a debate about, is the flag the same as the queen on some level? Okay, they're actually different things. But again, I talked about identity. Aren't they the same on some level? And you, that we would focus on that and say, okay, now I understand why you might feel upset. But I think most people go, no, the Queen is not the same as a flag. The Queen is a person. Well, yeah, but like no Republican's going to tell me she's not a person. But the point that we're trying to make is that actually my feeling of being British is very connected to a concept, not actually the Queen herself. I've, I've met her once and she, you know, when she came to my university a few years back now. So I don't actually have a concept of who she is, but what she stands for, because I don't think Americans get upset about a piece of fabric burning. Because if they did, they wouldn't go to a mechanic or, any, or, or you know, and say, oh, my gosh, look at that, how you're doing, you know, all that dirt on that piece of fabric. It's not the piece of fabric per se. It's what it means. And then we can say, okay, what does America mean to you? So when your flag gets burnt or when someone rips it or when someone destroys it, what does it, how do you feel about it? What does it mean to you? We're not having those discussions, Josh White, I think. I'd like to know your opinion, though, because I'm not an American, so I don't want to put words in, <laughs> into people's mouths. Uh, well, I think it's really fascinating around the circles of concern in this idea of of being a citizen of the world and how do we from a practical thing expand that circle and and i love that that outer ring that you included in the book of, of uh nature or, or the world um and i think it comes back to you know and i can only speak for me but the the perspective of the interconnectedness, the interdependence, 
really getting that kind of deep in your in your bones and your soul or whatever you would you would call it to to be able to expand that because that can be really really challenging even if you think when we're talking about different countries even going from maybe you can get as far as your particular country but then that next ring is maybe much more difficult and maybe those different rings there's different level of uh of challenge and expanding it out how do you see it i mean there's certainly i mean i think some people find it different it depends on how well you get on with your family right because you might find it much easier much easier to talk to people in the uk than your own mother i mean i'm i guess that you and i are lucky enough not to have that to be the case because we didn't we wouldn't automatically think that but i think some people find the relationship with their parents particularly if they let their parents down or vice versa whatever they mean by that phrase they might find that a much bigger jump because the consequences of that, because you mean, you might say, well, I don't like, you know, I don't like people in the UK, so I just don't go there. Right. And you could live a perfectly happy life, right. And never go to the UK. There are people that will die living a perfectly wonderful life and never have gone to see the Brits and gone, you know what, but their relationship with their mum, even if they don't like each other might be like, they might feel like I wasn't a good enough child to make it work or I wasn't a good enough mother to make it work so I think it really depends on on the kind of relationships that you have As the Stoics will say like you know every you know there is a universal humanity but we shouldn't treat everybody the same right because how I would talk to the person that I said a Republican wouldn't be the same way that I talk to a Democrat because I'm always looking at how what can what binds us together what what's the message that they need to hear before they hear the other message right people might say oh that's an insincere is it? I mean, like, I could buy, you know, I love American football. I could probably bond with most uh, Republican males over American football. For me, it is the greatest sport in the world, right? <laughs> you know, I don't, the only thing I don't like is when they say we're world champions. I'm like, well, that's not really what happened. But other than that, like, I honestly believe American football is fantastic and Canadian football is fantastic. And I could bond, I could speak all day and would learn quite happily you know, all the stats that you guys, you know, tend to know in the US. So I could bond over that. And they're like, oh, Kai's all right, you know. You know, he votes differently, but he really likes the Jacksonville Jaguars, and that's what matters. <laughs> you know, and it's because I'm a massive Jacksonville Jaguar fan. So yeah. it's not about trying to pick points. It's trying to be like, how can I build a, a friendship? How can I? So then they might go, well, he's a bit weird. You know, he's not really Republican. He's like this British weird guy. But I really appreciate the fact that he loves my team and he goes with me and then they might say well what is it like in the UK and why do you think differently and why is the right wing in the UK actually the left wing in the US and you actually get into a debate not to prove a point but to share to share to learn together and I, I just want to I, I just want to see that and I think stoicism is a, a really good way of navigating that right now mess I would say it's a mess <laughs> do you see stoicism being in common with you know, some of these other ancient traditions or philosophical schools, sometimes I see more in common um, than otherwise. Like, for example, you've mentioned and in, in you write a few times in the book about the middle ground. I, I think of um, one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius. It's good character and acts for the common good. That and being probably the most important word in the sentence in in Buddhism, the middle way. Um, how do you see? Do you see a lot of similarities or? I don't tend to think about uh, similarities. I tend to think about 
people because I, I get very you probably read my some of my work I get very frustrated when contemporary stoics say that there's no God and that if you believe in God uh, that you're a bit foolish I think that's incredibly rude firstly you can't prove there is a God so why try <laughs> like, se- uh, secondly I always say things like okay so that God you know God is you know, there's no proof for God so therefore we shouldn't there's no proof against all four so therefore we shouldn't believe in God okay the, the stoics have a claim that virtue is the only good what evidence do you use to come to that conclusion? Sorry, no evidence? So you just, out of your head, you just claim that the virtues were the only good? Mm-hmm. And the, the only way stoicism works is that virtues are the only good? Hmm, religious claim. Right? So I kind of, I prefer to sort of look at it like that, to say like, okay, what is the premise? Like for, Christ, for Christians, for example. So I don't look at similarities between them because I don't think that's very helpful. What I tend to say is, like, when I speak to Christians, like, what do you, what do you try to do? If they're sincere, not everybody's sincere. So I don't mean that you just put a label. I mean, you literally, you live, breathe Christianity. What are you trying to do? And they'll say, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to serve my Lord. I'm very grateful for Jesus Christ who's, who, who died for me and washed my sins away. What does that look like? Well, I try to be just. I try. <laughs> so, and like, or you might, for example, Muslims would say, you know, I, I try to do what God has asked me to do. Uh, I pray five times a day. I put my forehead on the floor, and I'm really grateful to the, to Allah, and I'm really pleased that, you know, uh, His Prophet, they would say, peace be upon him, showed us the way. Okay, and what does the way look like? And they say, well, it's about it's about being just. It's about, and I say, what does that mean? So I, I don't look for like similarities in terms of the actual structure, because also I think if you come from a different perspective, you actually see it from a really weird angle. So I think it's, it's about asking Christians, what does it mean to you? Rather than saying, well, I, I do look at logic. So I'll say, well, that's not very logical. Like if you look at it from a logical perspective. But I wouldn't say to somebody like, oh, you, you, your belief in God is, is, is ridiculous. I might say, well, the logic of that is a bit twisty, but we can, we can tie that up. If you start with this premise, it would make sense. But the premise you're starting on doesn't. So I, I don't try to look under similarities. I could do it from an academic perspective and people have asked me to do that and that's fine. But I don't actually, in the day-to-day, I think it actually creates different people find that they disagree more than they agree. So I'm like, okay, what does that mean to you? Because I'm not being funny. There's probably eight meaning gods out there or at least concepts of gods out there. So I'm like, what does that mean to you? Or lack, you know, even if you don't believe in God, you still have a concept of what God is. So I know it's a bit of a weird question. But academically, I could do it. But I, w- I would say that, was, that would be interesting only from an academic theoretical perspective. Like, okay, how much is, is, you know, when Jesus talks about the Logos, how much did he borrow from the sage and stories? We can talk about that. Does it matter? Like, does it matter to you, Joshua, on a day-to-day? And you might say, yes, I'm an academic. It absolutely matters. So when we, we did, Leo and I wrote a piece on the Stoic God and why the Stoic God could be important in terms of environmental aspects. But for the majority of people, they're like, you don't attack me for believing in God? No. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Most people are like, so you think I'm not stupid? No, of course you're not stupid. Why would I think you're stupid? Because you believe in God. Oh, they say you can't prove it. Well, you can't prove virtue is the only good. And they're like, yes. Like, he gets us. He's a, he's a, he's a nice guy. Okay, okay, if I'm nice for that reason, well, I'm very glad I could help you. So that's the kind of thing I focus on. I don't know if that, does that, I don't know if that was a cop-out or not, was it? I don't know. No, I, I love that. And uh, this has been a great conversation. Our time has really flown by. And I've got just a few wrap-up questions, if, uh, if you don't mind uh, answering a few more. Um, one is, since this is in search of wisdom, you know, how do you define wisdom briefly? 
Um, I would say what I said before. So it's to know what is good, what is bad, and what is neither. To know what to do, how to do it, and with whom. And it's a moment-by-moment thing because you might say, well, 10 minutes ago it was really wise to do this, but now I know because something else has happened. And say it was really wise to escape a boat through this door, but now we've just had a flash fire. So we can't go through the door anymore. What else can we do? So it's a moment-by-moment wisdom thing. It's not like that was why, you know, he's wise because historically he did this. Is he still wise now? So that's, I guess, I guess I, I, that's an easy question because I'd go with the stoic perspective. And how about for someone listening, looking for a small step or, or practice to, to live a life with a, a bit more wisdom? That's a really good question. Um, I would say really one of the things that you can do is think about your priorities, what you prioritize in life, right? Because people might say, I don't have time to read. I'm like, we all have 24 hours in a day. And then I might say, do you have a car? And they'd be like, yes. I'd be like, what do you listen to on the radio? And they'd be like, oh, I listen to country and western. Okay, that's great. Do you, is, it, is it all the time, every time you drive? Yeah. How many, t- how many hours are you in, you know, Texas traffic? And they might say, I mean, for, I'm there for an, 35 minutes. Why don't you listen in the morning to your country and western because you're tired and in the afternoon, you know, or vice versa, and in the afternoon you listen to a, a book on stoicism or a book on the founding fathers, right? So it, it's kind of like saying to people, don't, don't envision like the ideal world. Make it work for you. Because a lot of people go, well, you know, it's like they take the extremes. Like, I have to wake up at 5 a.m. because that makes me a great person. It's like, no, it just makes you a person that wakes up at 5 a.m. It doesn't make you good or bad. I love those books that go, you know, like the early morning thing. It's like, no, it just makes you a person who wakes up at 5. That's what it means. You're a person who wakes up at 5. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so it's like, make it work for you. Like, this is why we say in Being Better, like, we can't give you the answers. We can just show you how to ask better questions because the best person to answer your problem is actually you. It's not us. And that's why we wanted to make like an anti-self-help book where we're saying, you know, we're not going to tell you what to do. Just to give you the last quick example, I give a, always give a silly one. Like imagine, sorry, Joshua, how tall are you? Uh, 5'10". Roughly. 5'10". Okay, so you're taller than me. Imagine I want to get toilet paper from the top shelf and I say, Joshua, how do you do it? And you're like, you stand here, you lift your arms up. So now I go, okay, I do that. I lift my arm up and go, I'm five foot five and I can't reach. Believe you can reach. I'm believing. The answer is actually just get a step ladder. Make it work for you. (laughs) So that would be what I would say to people. That's the first step. Make things work for you. Find that space, but don't cram it. And don't feel that you have to get up at 5 a.m. Just be like, okay, when do I have my dead spaces? Do you walk from work? Do you walk, you know, do you walk around when you go to the supermarket on your own? Put headphones in your ear if you like and listen to an audio book if that's when you get your wisdom. Or when you're training. And if you say, well, I'm, you know, that I don't want to read, I'd say it's very hard for you to learn from the mistakes of others because then you have to... Basically, the only way you learn is by making your own mistakes, and that's a very costly error. I greatly appreciate that. And you can also pick up the book, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. I highly recommend it. Lots of great examples. It's very practical. Um, and and uh, quite a few stoic figures that, that maybe you're not familiar with. So this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about you and, and your work? Uh, very good question. Um, Stoichai.com or Kai Whiting on Twitter. The only thing I would say is rather than buy the book, if you could ask your local library, that would also work because that people who couldn't maintain their job in the pandemic could read it. So 
if you want to buy it, that's cool. But actually, a more straight thing to do would be actually ask your library so that, or or at least share it with people so that it's not just sitting in your bookshelf, you know, for eternity after you've read it. I mean, if you really love it and it's really useful, then great. But otherwise, please ask your local library or if you've read it and if you enjoy it, donate it to somebody because there's nothing worse than having a dusty book on the shelf. There's no wisdom in that. I love that. Uh, Kai Whiting, thank you for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for yours, and thank you, listeners, for yours. I really appreciate it. You could have spent an hour any time, anyhow you wanted, and you chose to listen to me. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.